So this is a podcast for practical neurology and I'm with Professor Hugh Morris from Queen Square in London who is uh, an authority on young onset Parkinson's disease. So Hugh, what did you think of this book? Uh, thanks for a lot. Well I thought I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, I thought it was uh, a very entertaining book to read. I think the thing to say first of all is that Michael J Fox personally has done a fantastic amount for Parkinson's disease research in terms of um, in terms of publicising Parkinson's disease, uh, raising money for research, and really organising research effort in the US uh, and in the UK. Um, I think the book is presented as a as a journey uh, for Michael J. Fox uh, from his initial beginnings as a as an unsuccessful actor, then a successful actor, um, then someone who one might say had a spoilt existence in which everything was taken care from him, uh, taken care of for him, uh, and then the impact of being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and what happened after that. So obviously he's a very special person in terms of his celebrity, his wealth, his influence, which I think means that he is a special and important person in terms of Parkinson's disease. But also I think there are a lot of generalisable aspects of what happened to him that I think many patients will will recognise. Um, I think that one of the most moving, uh, certainly as a physician, one of the most moving and memorable parts of the book uh, was the bit when um, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease was initially broached with him when he described an impact as if he'd been hit by a truck uh, when the diagnosis was given to him of Parkinson's disease. And I think, you know, for all of us who are physicians who are used to giving uh, diagnoses to patients that are going to change the rest of their lives, I think it's very instructive to read that section to realise what an impact it has giving such potential life-changing news to patients and to understand what a huge impact it has on people um, in terms of their future life and what will happen to them in their future life. Do, do you think it changed the way that you've practiced or, or did you already have that insight yourself? Um, I think it makes you more mindful of uh, giving a diagnosis. Obviously you realise that giving a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or uh, motor neuron disease, ALS, you know, a massive diagnosis to give to patients. But, you know, obviously we see a large number of patients and I think uh, the, the individual impact on the patient perhaps you know, it becomes routine given these diagnoses where we, we need to think really carefully about how it's going to affect people and how it's going to affect people differently. I think another aspect which is really interesting, which I think is um, particularly relevant to early onset Parkinson's disease patients who are in work and maybe have a lot of family commitments, is the way that he described handling the diagnosis in that initially the diagnosis, he kept the diagnosis a complete secret and didn't tell anyone that he'd been diagnosed as having Parkinson's disease. And gradually there came a point when he did, you know, come out with the diagnosis and tell his work colleagues um, and the wider public about the diagnosis. And I think that those are two phases that many Parkinson's disease patients have in that initially when they might have quite minimal symptoms, you know, occasional tremor, uh, Michael J. Fox describes sitting on his hands to try and suppress the tremor. I think that's something many patients recognise trying to disguise the, the symptoms from their work colleagues and maybe you know, distant family members as well. And then there coming a point when they have to come out with the diagnosis and to explain what's been happening to them. And, and 
clearly, if, if you're in the, in the public eye, the, the impact of doing that is is massive. But that kind of magnifies, you know, a hundred times, if you like, what it means to come out with diagnosis. But I think that that journey of um, patients in release and diagnosis is something that many patients will will um, recognise and associate with, and also the relief actually of telling other people that's what diagnosis is, and the relief of of, of having an explanation then. Um, for the symptoms that, it, that he had. It was a key point in the book, but it, but it was more than a relief with him. It, it, it almost made him feel he was a lucky man, that, that he no longer had to conceal this and he could, he could be open with people and uh, uh, that uh, he, he felt that this put him in a, a stronger position than other people who'd not had to face up to that sort of problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are... Uh, I think that um, there's quite a contrast in the book which obviously he, I think he must consciously be making in the book. There's quite a contrast in his life before the diagnosis, in which, as I say, everything was done for him. He was very wealthy. He was very successful. Um, you know, had a feeling that he could do no wrong. And he mentioned actually not having to pay for things. So that you know, saying I think he liked a pair of trainers, and all of a sudden being sent a hundred pairs of trainers through the post just to just to pay. You know, which is something that many of us would like to have free. You know, this sort of a life of free trainers and free lots of other things and and you know, how spoilt he was in that. And I think that he consciously, you know, is, is, is highlighting that in the book. And he frames, actually there are two parts of the book that he frames in a sort of redemptive way. One actually is giving up drinking alcohol. And actually that's obviously, in a way actually that's, although it's not the focus of the book, that's almost as big a part as the Parkinson's disease. Because obviously alcohol was severely, you know, significantly affecting his life. He became very dependent on alcohol in managing life's, minor ups and downs you know for example a film opening and how many people went to see it you know his, his way of dealing with that was to drink very very heavily to cope with that you know the minor ups and downs that that all of us all of us have so he became he was very dependent on alcohol giving up alcohol was redemptive but he also frames being diagnosed as having parkinson's disease as being redemptive in that it gave his life some purpose that was outside the purpose that he had in terms of entertaining people making TV shows and uh, movies. And I think that, that's why the book's called Lucky Man. Um, I think for, for Parkinson's disease patients, people with Parkinson's disease that I've spoken to, they find that slightly difficult in terms of framing Parkinson's, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease in a, redemptive, in a redemptive light because obviously for the vast majority of people, diagnosed, being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease is a bad thing to happen, which has, may have terrible effects on their life. And their livelihood, and Michael J. Fox is clearly in a very privileged position. It obviously did, has helped him in his approach to life, taking things on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, valuing time with his family, valuing what he can achieve on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, it, it obviously has changed his mindset in a positive way. I think a lot of patients with Parkinson's will find it difficult to think of Parkinson's disease as being a positive, a positive thing. But it clearly has been for him, and I think what he's done with um, his diagnosis has been positive for people all around the world with Parkinson's disease. So I, I, I can understand that. But so so would, you, would you recommend this to patients then, do you think, this book? I think it, I think it is. Um, I have actually since reading it and um, discussing it in the excellent um, book club discussion which you, which you hosted, I have discussed it with patients and particularly I think um, for patients at or around diagnosis, who are very worried about whether they're going to work, very worried about their, whether they're going to continue on any sort of normal life, 
you know, what it means to their family. I think it is helpful to to hear about someone's positive experience. They've carried on with their work and they've been able to manage their disease around their work commitments, continue to be able to provide for their family for a time. So I think for certain patients that is that 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 is helpful. Of course, our standard advice um, for Parkinson's patients would be to be, you know, in, in touch with patient charities such as Parkinson's UK, perhaps to meet with other Parkinson's patients. That can be very difficult for patients in the early stages of disease who are very worried about seeing people who are more disabled than they are. So actually reading something about it, reading someone's personal account may be more helpful or more acceptable to people than, you know, going along and meeting with other patients. So I have discussed it with, um, I have discussed it with patients and, um, you know, some patients have, have found it positive and helpful. I think a lot of patients find it very positive and helpful looking at the Michael J. Fox Foundation website, which talks about research and you know, takes a very positive approach to developing new treatments, raising money for Parkinson's research, which I, I think I think will be enormously helpful in terms of generating new treatments. But actually, even before that happens, is very helpful in generating positive attitudes amongst people with Parkinson's, people doing research with Parkinson's, and and obviously having a positive attitude, I think, is um, is very important for Parkinson's patients and also researchers. Both you know, basic science research and clinicians who are working on Parkinson's disease. So c- can I ask about the clinical presentation then? So it's obviously quite unusual for, well, very unusual for a, a person to present so young. Uh, his Was his presentation typical, do you think, of a young onset Parkinson's? I think that the, um, I think that in the book there is a delay in the diagnosis. I think that the diagnosis is delayed, so but it's initially put down to musculoskeletal problems, so having a shoulder um, problem. Um, so that's very common, I think, particularly with patients with early onset Parkinson's disease, to have a delay in diagnosis. Most general practitioners or general physicians would not think about Parkinson's disease primarily in a young person um, presenting with stiffness or tremor or difficulty with use of one arm. Um, it'd be quite low down the list. I mean, he is an. Ex- I mean, to develop Parkinson's disease in your twenties, I think he was twenty-eight or twenty-nine when he first developed symptoms. That is an exceptionally unusual thing to happen. So we've we've carried out a, a community-based study in Cardiff, Wales, um, looking at the um, prevalence of early-onset Parkinson's disease, and less than one percent of patients with Parkinson's disease develop symptoms before the age of forty, and even less below the age of thirty. So. Amongst Parkinson's patients, it is very, very unusual to develop Parkinson's disease in your 20s. We also know that tremor in Parkinson's disease becomes more common the older that you get. So in fact, the majority of patients with early onset Parkinson's disease will get a bradykinetic predominant presentation rather than a tremor dominant presentation um, with early onset disease. So that again is, is, is unusual to develop tremor at onset. So, um, you know, I mean, he's clearly an unusual patient by virtue of his age of onset, and that brings us forward to what the etiology of the disease might be. Um, you know, Parkinson's is an age-dependent condition. The older you are, the more likely you are to develop it. Um, what underpins my research and, and my interest in this area is that if you develop Parkinson's disease in your 20s or 30s, that's a very unusual thing to happen, and... Um, like a lot of patients, Michael J. Fox talks about um, possible environmental factors that might be relevant to cause of his disease. I think he talks about a television 
um, show he worked on in which two or three uh, of his co-workers on the show all developed Parkinson's disease. So I've heard that a similar type of story from other patients with early onset Parkinson's disease that, that, that a number of work colleagues have all developed Parkinson's disease, which does provide some sort of anecdotal um, support for an environmental factor being relevant to Parkinson's disease. It is extremely difficult to track down what the environmental factors might be in you know, localised clusters of that nature, referring to people who worked together, you know, 10 years before the onset of the disease. To my knowledge, you know, aside from MPTP, um, manganese exposure, which, which doesn't really cause typical Parkinson's disease, um, head injury, again, you know, repetitive head injury in boxers, again, doesn't cause typical Parkinson's disease, either clinically or pathologically. Aside from those sorts of um, examples, in general, we don't have a clear handle on environmental factors causing Parkinson's disease, particularly not in individual cases. It's difficult to you know, identify environmental factors in individual patients in front of you. What is a lot easier to identify is genetic factors, and we know that in patients with early onset Parkinson's disease, there's an increased familial recurrence risk to siblings uh, over and above the recurrence risk to parents and children, which points towards recessive um, factors in development of Parkinson's disease. In patients under the age of 45 who develop Parkinson's disease, about 10% will have um, biallelic, either compound heterozygous or homozygous mutations in uh, a recessive disease gene like Parkin, Pink1 or DJ1 being the, the best known um, examples. And, and as you get younger, the risk of having a, um, a, a genetic factor becomes higher so that patients under the age of 30, the, the rate of or the likelihood of having biallelic uh, mutations in the Parkin gene probably goes up to at least 30%. The various estimates, and it's difficult to, you know, most case series involved, uh, involve studying highly selected patients. Um, so it's difficult to get a community-based um, or population-based idea of the prevalence of this, but there, is a, there would be a significant um, chance of Michael J. Fox having a genetic cause for his Parkinson's disease. So, so, but the presentation with tremor at a young age, does that guide you to one gene or another? Not, not really. I mean, the, uh, the, the LERC2 gene, which is also dominant, um, has been particularly associated with tremor, although not to the extent that that's useful, I think, in differential diagnosis. And again, um, Michael J. Fox's parents were not affected with Parkinson's disease, which would tend to point against an uh, autosomal dominant um, cause for his Parkinson's disease. Um, but certainly a recessive cause is, you know, is, is, is possible, but this is not on record what, what the etiology of Michael J. Fox's um, Parkinson's disease is. I think studying genetic facts in Parkinson's disease is very important because um, not, I mean, for some patients, it's important to know what if there is risk to other family members. But over and above that, it gives us a real insight into what the etiology of Parkinson's disease is, allows us to develop new disease models to, to take forward to new therapies. So understanding what the etiology of patients with early onset Parkinson's disease, what the etiology of their Parkinson's disease is, I think is going to continue to be really important in allowing us to develop um, cell and animal models that we can use to to develop new treatments for, for patients, which is obviously the ultimate aim of our research. 
And uh, the way that he was managed as well was much that, that, that he was allowed to make changes to his own medication in uh, uh, you know, quite to make him quite autonomous really with his management. Does that give us any messages for how we should be uh, helping people to manage their own disorder in the UK as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that in the UK things have certainly changed over the last 10, 15 years. So I think maybe 15 years ago, I think that our um, our advice would be that patients should take their medication at absolutely fixed times. They shouldn't deviate from that. Um, they should follow um, the, the doctor's instructions exactly. So that was our advice to patients. You know, we knew from compliance studies that patients didn't do that. So that we were, <laughs> so that I think doctors were delude, doctors are deluded that their patients go off and do exactly what they say. Even if patients come to clinic and say, "Oh yes, I take them at completely regular times," we know from mobs, you know, compliance studies that that's not the case, and that patients do, to some extent, freewheel with their with their treatment. Um, I think that becomes, I think that becomes particularly important when patients have on-off fluctuations, dyskinesias, wearing-off periods that are difficult to manage or to improve. I think then erratic medication taking becomes a real problem. I think we've also become aware that there are some patients who have a um, a psychological effect from taking dopaminergic medication, so dopamine dysregulation, and may take their medication erratically for psychological reasons. So I think one has to be quite cautious about um, patients taking their medications in a entirely autonomous way on the other hand i think that's a very important strand of improving management of patients with parkinson's these other long-term conditions is the expert patient approach to things where patients become expert in their own disease understand how the medication affects them their response to medication and are able to then take some of their own decisions um, about their medication timing about their um their physical demands from the day-to-day -day basis, and I think that's and I'm, I think that's an important I think it's a very important thing giving patients some autonomy and responsibility for selected patients. Clearly, not for all patients, but for some patients, I think it's very helpful for patients to have some autonomy in terms of managing their medication uh, and being experts in their own condition. And I'm sure this improves compliance as well, involving patients in their decisions about taking treatment and how they might modify and adapt their, their their treatment and making it more of a partnership between the patient and the physician rather than being entirely physician dictated. Because, you know, of course, when patients come up to, particularly with Parkinson's disease, when patients come up to clinic, you get a 10-minute snapshot of what their disease is like in those 10 minutes. And the other three months, you know, you don't know what's, you don't really know what's happening. And you're, you know, the patient, of course, knows what's happening, but you get a very brief snapshot when um, the patient comes up to clinic, so it seems from the it seems from the book that Michael J. Fox um, modified his medication regime to fit with his filming schedule for shooting to make sure that he was on and was mobile with good quality movement when he was filming, and that um, when he had off periods, he went to rest and and didn't um, film. And actually, I think that's really helpful for Parkinson's patients to actually not so much 
be completely freewheeling with their medication regime, but rather to fit their you know, life demands around their disease. So many patients with Parkinson's disease are off periods in the early afternoon, go and sleep or rest in the early afternoon rather than trying to be active. So actually trying to tailor your lifestyle to your treatment regime, I think, is extremely helpful. And Mark J. Fox describes how he does that in the book and clearly he's a very sensible person with, uh, with, with his medication regime. Just to return to something we talked about earlier, uh, do you feel that the specialist has any role in advising people when to disclose their condition to other people? Uh, I, I think it's obviously a personal decision. I think that um, my so my my experience with this is normally that patients are very reticent to disclose it to other people. I think that there are clearly medical legal implications, so patients need to disclose to their insurance companies. I certainly always would recommend that a patient would disclose to their line manager at work that would be who they would be aware that they had the diagnosis because of potential implications, legal implications in terms of their responsibilities at work. Um, I find that in terms of in terms of um, sort of other work colleagues, you know, acquaintances and friends, patients are often reticent about disclosing the diagnosis and. I uh, often find myself taking the role of encouraging people to discuss the diagnosis. Um, the reason being is that when patients then come back to clinics, well, I've disclosed it to my work colleagues and they've been very, very supportive. They've all said, oh, we're really glad you told us this because we noticed you had a tremor. We wondered if you were drinking too much. We wondered if you were stressed. Uh, we wondered if there was some other disease or condition that was going on. So actually the a lot of people report that it's been extremely helpful mm. telling their work colleagues and, and their work colleagues and friends have been extremely supportive, much more supportive than the patient themselves you know, anticipated before they discussed it. So I often find myself in the role of encouraging people to disclose the diagnosis, but clearly it's an individual decision for people depending on how they feel and how they, what their relationships are um, that relate to the people they might disclose the diagnosis to. Yeah, because because in this book, it's uh, I would think other people probably recognised there was something wrong, and uh, maybe uh, Michael J. Fox himself didn't realise the extent to which people were concerned about his health, not perhaps not knowing. I think that's a very common. I think that's a yeah. very common scenario. So finally, then, would you recommend this for neurologists to read? I think it's. Uh, I find it instructive reading the book. Um, I think neurologists should read more books and listen to more accounts of patients about their disease and illness i think that we i think that the i think the mindset when you're in clinic and going through a medical history with a patient offers you some insights into what patients are thinking and what the experiences of having the disease but unless you've had the disease yourself you don't get the full picture and you don't fully understand what's happening i think listening to more accounts of patients be they verbal accounts or written accounts of what it's like to have a disease and experience it, I think is very valuable for physicians and I'd, I'd recommend people do this as widely as possible. And I certainly felt that I learnt, you know, despite the fact I've seen a large number of patients with Parkinson's disease, a large number of patients early onset Parkinson's disease, I felt I learned more about the disease through, read, through reading this book. Hugh Morris, thank you very much. Thanks.